count yourself lucky if that's the hardest thing you have to do. Think about all the people out there who are starving. Think about all the people out there. Oh, God. Who, oh, God. Come who, on. And all you got to do is watch a movie you don't like. Think about that. Mm. Think about how blessed you are. Mm. By God or Satan. Whoever, whoever you want to believe oh, in. Oh, God. <laughs> Welcome to Secret Movie Club Podcast 130. Today we are talking about Edward Yang's masterpiece along with Yi Yi, A Brighter Summer Day and International Noir, by which we mean movies made not in the United States that are very noir. Uh, Brighter Summer Day actually continues to ascend Sight and Sound's Best Movies of All Time poll, which just came up and which we are going to be discussing in the new year. Chantel Ackerman's John Dealman uh, surprised everyone by grabbing number one. It's been a topic of conversation, but that's just a little tease for something coming up. Who's with us today? Oh, hey, what's up? It's Daniel. Hey, it's me, Connelly Cruz, the People's Champion. Hello, America. Just tired. Didn't get any sleep until 4 a.m. because I have to watch two movies. Mad about watching movies. Yeah, Edwin, and, and well, I, but this time, though, it's not like you were double fisting Sonny Chiba because Tarantino mentioned him in a movie you saw. You actually were doing work. You were watching movies for our podcasts, and I, I take my hat off to you. I did, but after that, I watched Patton first, and that was also three hours, so I wanted to watch a true American movie before I went into this crap. So you mean before you did your work, you chose you electively chose to watch a three-hour film? Yeah, yeah, I did, on 35mm. It was great. I loved it. I loved every minute oh, of it. Coppola actually tells a really great story about Patton, which is that when he made, when he wrote the screenplay for Godfather with Puzo, Everybody read it and they said, you know, you you should have an opening scene like the one in Patton, just something that really is out of left field and grabs everyone's attention. And that's why he wrote the I Believe in America intro that Bonacera says. That's actually him riffing on his own Patton monologue at the beginning of Patton. And once you know that, you can totally tell. And it's great. What a great idea. I mean, hell, I'll rip it off. Show, Pat, show Patton then. I like Patton. I like Patton. I like especially when he reveals that he believes in reincarnation. When George C. Scott's like, I was a Roman emperor. Rah, 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 rah. Yeah, I like I like Patton. Patton my belly after it's full <laughs> from eating. Come on. What about Patton Oswald? He's, he's funny. <laughs> okay. My name is Craig. I am the founder programmer of Secret Movie Club. It's wonderful to have you. When you hear this, we are going to be entering our final two weeks of 2022 on the 16th, which is when you're going to be hearing this podcast. Three Godfathers and Rio Grande. Three Godfathers is actually probably no surprise to you. A Christmas theme, John Ford, about three outlaws who discover a baby and actually take the baby across Death Valley to get it to its mom. Uh, it definitely uh, has uh, shades and themes of the three wise men in the nativity. And then we show one of my favorite John Ford movies, Rio Grande, the final in his cavalry trilogy, also about family. I've been thinking lately, especially because of the Fablemans, about has surprisingly, not surprisingly actually at all, why someone like Steven Spielberg would be so obsessed with John Ford. And one of the things that overlaps so obviously is both of their obsessions with family. Rio Grande is another one of the John Ford movies about a family that was torn apart that reassembles. On the 17th, in the, the daytime, we are going to show two deep-cut John Fords, Dr. Bull and Judge Priest, two movies I love with Will Rogers, who you can only describe as, as sort of the 1920s and 1930s 
would be maybe not quite accurate to call him that era's Dave Chappelle or that era's Richard Pryor, but he was someone who made fun of everything. And sometimes Americans trusted him, maybe not as controversial as Chappelle, or maybe that era's, here's a better one, that era's Trevor Noah might be a little more accurate. They trusted him more than they even trusted the politicians. And John Ford made two movies with him, which are great. On Wednesday, the 21st, we are doing our final open mic short night of 2022. The theme is holiday and the new year. Please come. These things are now selling out and the movies are of tremendously high quality and it's a filmmakers around LA bringing in their under 10 minute shorts. And then we all sit and watch them and they introduce them and then you get to talk and meet with people. And then Thursday, the 22nd, we're showing one of my favorite French new wave movies, Eric Romare's My Night at Mods, which uh, clearly influenced Richard Linklater and a whole bunch of people in the walk and talk genre or Kevin Smith, where suddenly conversation conversation could be cinematic. My Night at Mods is amazing. And it's about a guy and a woman who's an atheist and he's very spiritual. And through circumstance, they end up spending the night together. Not sexually necessarily. You don't know. Do they? Don't they? I don't want to ruin that. But the sexual tension builds while they talk. She's a divorcee and an atheist. He's never been married and he's thinking about love. And they talk about their different perspectives. And it's amazing. And it snows outside and it's in France and I love it. And if you're wondering, uh, we have moved our December 17th Seven Samurai uh, for the very important reason that I'm determined to show it on 35 millimeter and at the Million Dollar Theater because tons of people want to see it. So we are going to reschedule that for sometime between January and March 2023 and we will announce that ASAP. As always, please write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. You can find out everything we're doing at secretmovieclub.com. And by the time you hear this, we will have already started announcing our winner 2023 Q1 season. And I will just tell you some of the events that are happening. Our director of the year, Alfred Hitchcock. We're calling the series The Master. And uh, we are kicking off uh, that series on Saturday, January 7th with a double feature of The Man Who Knew Too Much, 1934, and The Man Who Knew Too Much, 1956, on 35 millimeter, the 56 version. Also, we are doing all four Jackass movies in January as part of our (laughs) reconsideration cinema. I love those movies. I think those movies are art. I also met Steve-O at at Jumbo's Clown Room with Michael Anderson, the little person from Twin Peaks, a story I don't think I've ever shared. And all three of us were smoking and talking. One of the most surreal moments of my life, I'll share that. Smoking cigarettes with Steve-O, Michael Anderson, as we all had had drinks at Jumbo's Clown Room. But I love Jackass. I think the Jackass series is art, and I have programmed it as part of our reconsideration cinema, and I'm showing all four. Also, along with that, we are doing the Jones Jones series where we're showing Spike Jones movies. So we got Being John Malkovich on 35, and I am actually hoping to get all the other ones on 35, but we are doing Adaptation, Where the Wild Things Are and Her. We are showing over 30 Alfred Hitchcock movies at this count right now, 35, including eight Alfred Hitchcock Presents that he directed across the year. So get the series pass. If you get the series pass, it's going to come out to like $4 a movie. You can't really beat that. There's a lot more to announce, but just look at what we're doing. We're announcing January through uh, March. But today, I'm so glad I got an extemporaneous eruption of joy from Edwin. That happens so rarely when I announce our schedules. Well, it's mainly because of Jackass, man. You're showing, you're showing real cinema. It is real you're cinema. showing the real R. I know. That's what I'm saying.
A few weeks ago, we were all pleasantly surprised when Edward Yang's 1991 movie, four-hour movie, by the way, A Brighter Summer Day, a Taiwanese movie, it actually, the title in Taiwanese translates as The Youth Murder Incident on Gulong Street, which is a much more accurate title to what you're about to see. But A Brighter Summer Day refers to a lyric in Elvis Presley song, which is a great title too, because the movie is about Taiwanese youth in the 1950s, and specifically one boy who, through a series of events, his life just gets rougher and rougher. He gets involved in the gangs that are forming in Taiwan between Taiwanese-born youth and then mainland Chinese youth who had to immigrate after the Civil War that eventually was settled in 1948 when Mao made mainland China communist and Chiang Kai-shek, who Let's just be frank. We, we often, a lot of people in the West sort of elevate Chiang Kai-shek. He was a military dictator. He receded to Taiwan and Taiwan ended up being under martial law for 35 years, the longest country under martial law until Syria which is still under martial law. Syria has claimed the throne. But anyway, the log line for a brighter summer day would be a boy in high school through a series of events falls more and more into juvenile delinquency and rock and roll and falls in love with a girl and his family as well experiences the political upheaval of 1950s Taiwan. I'm going to try to do that better before we get to the end of this, but it's kind of West Side Story in a weird way. So that's where my brain goes to is if, if West Side Story wasn't a musical. That's great. That's why Connor's the writer. You could look at it as a Taiwanese riff on West Side Story. It's an amazing movie, and it's four hours long, but to me it doesn't feel like that. And we're going to use that to start our discussion on movies that embrace elements of noir, which actually noir is a pretty broad topic because noir could be a police procedural. It could be a murder mystery. It could just sort of have you know nocturnal elements. But let's dive right into it. Uh, Connor, if you don't mind, why don't you lead us off? What do you think of A Brighter Summer Day? Yeah, one of our hosts has left and the other is taking a phone call. I know. So I'm going to give the audience the illusion that this was elective, but I'm I'm basically conscripting Connor into starting. I liked it a lot, actually. When I proposed watching this for the pod, there was a part of me that was like, oh, a four hour long. But, you know, the vibe of the movie, it has this true crime, this kind of complex web of all of these characters and trying to figure out what exactly their motivations were. By the end, I almost felt like I wanted more of it broken up into pieces, if that makes sense. Like, I almost wish it was like eight hours long and like three shorter movies or something, or like a series, because I thought the world was so uh, interesting and rich that I could have stayed in there a little while longer, and I could have almost used a little more background on the like political situation the movie leaves you to intuit a lot if you're not from taiwan for sure there's like kind of a mystery at the center of the film but it's like kind of obtuse which is this thing that the main character may or may not have seen and then suddenly the characters start talking about what he has seen, even though we haven't seen the character talk about what he has seen, which creates like a weird. And eventually, I think you begin to realize, or at least I did towards the end, that a lot of this originated from the person that he saw started saying stuff before he could say anything. Is what I'm sort of guessing is what happened. I like the dad's thing about not apologizing for something you didn't do. I think that's like a really 
powerful thing and that it reminded me of myself sometimes when I was in school. You especially because I came from a very conservative area and there's a very like big emphasis on if somebody older than you says something then it has to be right and I, I always hated that as a kid <laughs> and it reminded me of that where I was like well no that's not always true like you know I've been pulled over by cops and they'll be like well you were doing this and I wasn't doing that and you can tell that they're trying to tell you they're trying to get you to say you did something you didn't do also kind of reminded me of Rushmore a little bit <laughs> in a way especially with the main kid and then he has like this even smaller best friend and he has like the bully and, and there's something kind of weirdly sweet about uh, I mean, the characters are such kids four hour major motion picture that i had to watch about 11 o'clock uh, last night and i like it it's just and i've seen it twice in my life already one time on the criterion dvd i just forgot snippets of it but after rewatching it again like okay it's all right you know i i, I guess edward yang is a big fan of goodfellas because i could just tell right off the bat like you know, this reminds me of Goodfellas, just a tad bit. But, you know, it's a, it's a very good movie. It's a, it's a slice of life, you know, a lot of interesting characters. You can obviously tell there's like a political standpoint in the background of the movie, but it's mainly focused on the, the kids. I love it's in Connor's background I, where the kids are in, in the pan, they're singing. Ice cream shop. To me, that's probably the best moment in the whole damn movie. That's pretty cool. It's very Mean Streets in the kind of way. I don't know why. It's very Mean Streets. Edward Yang only really used one film as the template for A Brighter Summer Day, and that was Goodfellas, which had just come out a year before. And what's so funny about it is the movies don't have the same pacing or the same style, and yet there is a kind of atmospheric vibe of people hanging out and violence and politics, you know, sort of being there on the edges. It's funny to see how Goodfellas gets filtered through a Taiwanese playwright filmmaker making this epic. And yet I do understand the Scorsese influence of the movie. To kind of explain the scene that's behind me, these characters are playing at this ice cream shop. The little kid I mentioned earlier, who's the main character's best friend, he sings the female parts, and I forget what the songs are because his voice hasn't dropped. I saw this back in college, and I'm pretty sure I saw it at a theater, but when I was catching up on the movie before this, this didn't have an American release until basically 2011. I guess there was a restoration done in 2009, and then I got a proper American release in 2011, and then I guess Criterion put it out in the mid-2010s. It's part of this thing that I struggle to describe in the best way, where this feels like the type of thing when you present it as is, you're like, oh, it's a four-hour dramatic piece, sort of a coming-of-age story with an intermittent political and, and crime element. It just sounds like the ultimate film school thing. And then I think you sit down and watch it, and it is not that at all. Like There are very few movies that I think achieve a state of, I would call it like the dreamlike haze that the best types of movies put you in, where from start to finish, you're just sort of in. And that's kind of a crazy thing, because I think you do come into this with the expectation of like, okay, this is four hours, I have to prep for this. And I'm going to get to say I saw it. Yeah, I think there's some movies that people, it's almost like a check mark. Well, now I've seen this. But I think the beauty of things like this, cause I, I think there's no pretension in stuff when people create it in this world. Like, it's so acutely personal, and every decision is so intentional. I was really taken this time with, the entire thing is basically shot in mediums and wides. You're almost meant to feel like an observer who shouldn't be there. Like, you're in these conversations, but you're not a part of them. And it sort of lulls you into this false sense of 
security because you're like, oh, it's just these kids living life and they're they're doing their thing and you know things are rough. And then anytime there's a moment of violence, it feels really jarring. There's no musical cues to orchestrate your emotions. You just have to watch it unfold. I think the nighttime raid between the two groups is really horrific. The shot of, I think, is it Sir, mm-hmm. our main boy? Him walking into the completely dark building with the flashlight of the kid who's dying. And, and then the girlfriend comes up. And there's like zero conversation. It's just, you're just stuck in there having to watch it. It's wild to me that for four hours, this feels like absolutely orchestrated in intent versus like, oh, we have all this stuff we can include. I think everything feels necessary. I can't think of a thing I would cut out. What I was trying to say at the beginning was actually what surprised us was the movie sold out. We showed Brighter Summer Day and it was sold out. Not only that, what even further surprised us was everybody at the end said the same thing. I can't believe that movie was four hours. I was totally in it for four hours. And it's a movie with a very deliberate pace. It's not a fast-paced movie. And yet it's like a fascinating novel that you get really, really into and the atmosphere and the milieu of these kids throwing rock and roll parties and concerts and the gangs and their families and the school system. You know, there are very few movies I feel that achieve the level of, and I don't mean this as a knock, they're just different creative mediums, but there are certain movies that feel utterly like a novel at the same time they feel like a movie. And the cinematic novels, they're very few and far between. I mean, as weird as it is to say, I think Tarkovsky's Solaris has a novelistic feel to it, or Stalker. I think A Brighter Summer Day has a novelistic feel to it. I think Lawrence of Arabia has a novelistic feel to it. And I'm blown away at how much Edward Yang says in four hours while still being pretty cinematic. It doesn't feel like four hours. Yeah, I almost disagree, Daniel, that I think the only real barrier for this film, because I described it to Celeste after watching it, is that runtime. I think the other stuff about it, the crime elements, the setting, are actually like really compelling. And I think if this was twice as long, but divided into eight to 10 smaller sections, I think there wouldn't be that barrier because I don't think there's even that much of a barrier because it's really good. I do wonder how much I watched it at home and I watched it in two chunks, about two hours and two hours. I do think the length is a little bit of a barrier for me because of just attention span and bladder size. James Cameron was in an interview recently. It was interesting. I don't know if you read this, where people were grumbling that the new Avatar movie, Avatar 2, The Way of Water, is going to run three hours and 15 or three hours and 20. And he was saying, look, this was his justification. I actually want to be clear. I'm not actually making a statement of sympathy because I actually think most movies should run 90 minutes to 120 personally. I think if you're going to go over two hours, you have to have a really, really good reason. And when you do it well, like my favorite Desert Island movie, Seven Samurai, which is three and a half hours, then it's like transcendent. But anyway, Cameron was saying, we just have to accept you're going to get up and go to the bathroom. Just Accept it. You go to the movies, you're going to get up and go to the bathroom. And he said that he wanted the three-hour, 15-minute because he really wanted to get into character. He's admitting that he's he's like, you know, some people are going to miss parts of the movie and it'll be fine. I think his quote was, he was like, what about people that have to go to the bathroom? He goes, well, they'll see the scene that they missed when they see it again. And I was like, dang, that's a confident man. <laughs> so the noir elements, I think people listening to us would have already picked it up, but a lot of the movie takes place at night with these kids just hanging out in Taipei in the 1950s. And it's funny what you said, Connor, I actually gave the audience an intermission 
because a four-hour movie needs to have an intermission, in my opinion. That's kind of what I was thinking while watching it, because that's what I did. I did kind of a long intermission. I did like an, you know, an hour and a half. What I did was I tried to refresh my memory of the movie, and there's a real hinge in the movie, which is the night raid. And then immediately after the night raid, the police show up at the door to arrest Sir's father, and then that becomes the second half of the film. So what we did was I did an intermission as the woman sobbing in the hallway and Sir backs up into darkness. It actually cuts to black, and there's a moment of black before you see sir back at home and he's listening to the elvis presley song are you lonely tonight and that brighter summer day lyric and then from there to the end of the movie is about an hour and a half so we did two and a half hours 10 minute intermission hour and a half there's like a sense of tranquility i felt as a singular experience but i think you are allowed right back into that with a break i think some movies it's sort of detrimental to stop them that's just for me personally i think oh for sure people are going to take in this stuff if i stop I, i like lose the energy but i think this does feel almost like episodic to a degree in the way it flows that it, you can almost approach the kind of daunting length with well, I can watch this in parts and it will still feel effective because of the way it kind of lulls you in you reclaim that tranquility pretty fast well you're making a really important point Daniel actually that Edward Yang did not include an intermission and Edward Yang you know he went to film school he's a very smart dude he could have decided on one and he didn't so it is true that the movie's meant to be watched really in one sitting that is where I start to bump up against things that's a little annoying almost personally because I have some movies that are like getting close to that but I guess I guess I get it I'm a mixed mixed brain on it once you start getting past about three hours it does start to get a little bit like just include an intermission there should be more intermissions in movies just do one Jim Cameron I wonder if it's studio pushback because like movie theaters would love it that's a that's a concessions refresh Except I imagine studios get money from the screening. So more screenings in a day is more money for studio versus the theater. A break in the middle means you're going you're gonna to want popcorn. You're going to want drinks. It seems like beneficial to the theater. It's a mixed thing, especially as somebody who's I think it'd be kind of fun if I never made a movie longer than 90 minutes. I know that this is apparently based on a true story, but it sounded like it was more of like a half remembered thing that Yang remembered from his youth. Do you know anything about that? So spoiler, the catalytic event, tragic downfall, which is that ultimately Sir, who's really like everyone's saying here, he's like 14, 15. Ultimately, he becomes obsessed with a woman, a girl named Ming. And they have what appears to be a budding relationship, but it does feel doomed from the start, which seems like a very intentional comment on Taiwanese youth and the Taiwan of the 50s and 60s under martial law. And ultimately, Sir, in just a fit of impotent rage, kills her, stabs her. And then his family is doubly cursed because the father's stigmatized because of his arrest. And then the family's stigmatized because of Sir's. And there's a real tragic, like, the end of the movie. But what was interesting was that uh, Yang said that he made the movie in honor of his father's generation. He would have been of Sir's generation, actually. Sir represents Yang. The dad represents the dad. And interestingly, the dad and the son in the movie were played by a real father and son. Yang said, and I think this is very much a writerly drama, and a point I agree with, that tragedies are actually not cynical. You do tragedies so that you feel this devastating emotion so that actually something positive in the current moment can happen from a recognition of the tragic horror, horrific elements of a a country or its history. And so I think that was the point of the movie to feel this like what a waste, (laughs) like what a waste of all this youth. 
which is the feeling I'm left with. You know, and I, I cry just across the board. Um, but to answer your question, yeah, Yang said that he remembered this story of this boy who stabbed this girl in his neighborhood, and it always stuck with him. And then over time, he just thought about what was happening and where the country was and the tensions and the martial law and how the country was just coming out of martial law, I think, when he made the movie. Because go, going into the movie, I thought it was very explicitly based on a true story. But then when you look up the thing about the movie, you can't really find a source about this incident. I think it's kind of like when Terry Gilliam made Brazil after somebody described 1984 to him. <laughs> and I think this is that thing where it sounds like Yang remembered a murder that happened in his youth and decided to extrapolate from there. Now, yeah, the, I would have to study more. The only other bits I can give you are that Yang was a playwright. I do definitely think you feel in a good way the theatrical, the playwright. Like when you see a movie written by Tony Kushner or something or Tennessee Williams, there's also a bit of a playwriting aspect to this as well. A lot of great monologues and, and characters. International noir. We just deep dive to Brighter Summer Day. Would everyone just name a international noir movie and why you're uh, you're shouting it out? I'll go ahead and shout out another one that we showed that I watched last year and kind of talked about previously, which is High and Low, Kira Kurosawa's. And um, I've also seen, I've either seen Drunken Angel or Stray Dog. I've seen one of them. Drunken Angel is about the gangster with tuberculosis. Stray Dog is about the police officer who loses his gun. Mm. I'm still not entirely sure. <laughs> Maybe I've seen both of them. I've definitely seen one of them. But High and Low, I remember really loving. It's a very different type of international noir. Briar Summer Day is a, is a character study. is sort of on the street level of like where the crimes are happening, where High and Low is kind of intentionally with its title is on the investigation side of the noir. And it's probably a more an actual noir in terms of it's because of its black and white composition. I thought about Cowboy Bebop some as an animated international noir. It's interesting. Noir is a genre that's pretty specific to America in a lot of ways. It's one of the most American genres of art, though it is a term defined by French people. Uh, was popularized after the movement. And I'm guessing a big part of that is it seemed like French people in the 60s when it was the French New Wave, all that... Cahiers du Cinema. Yeah, all of that cinematic analysis that was going on. You can see that with a lot of that French New Wave, the influence of film noir. Sometimes in a visual sense, but more so in... The way that like half of those movies are about people who are like pretending to be thieves or pretending to be a detective or something like a band apart, which we watched last year. Yeah. Breathless. I'm guessing that that is that because that's when we started identifying more as a genre more so. And so we were we were motivated by this like secondary reaction to it to then go back and define what it was. As a quick definition, it's we should have done this at the head. Noir is the French word for black. Noir, people noticed that post-World War II, suddenly the movies were no longer these uplifting Astaire and Rogers, you know, people in Italy used to call them white telephone comedies because there'd always be a white telephone in like a hotel suite that no one could afford where you'd pick <laughs> it up and you'd be like, bring up the champagne, sir. And then suddenly on um, post-World War II, the main characters were these vets who had PTSD, whose like fate and destiny, people were dying, relationships were doomed. It mostly took place at night. Everyone was super violent. Everyone was on the graft and the con. A lot of people point out noir as being America's real maturation 
as a culture cinematically where suddenly themes that never were discussed really in film were discussed explicitly, uh, smuggled in as mysteries and and police movies and thrillers. And- this is a weird thing I might have to look into for the future, but it would be interesting to do something about, because noir would have come out about as a genre at roughly the same time. It kind of extends from hard-boiled detective novels, but it also, um, it's in like a decade or so of superheroes and the explosion of superheroes in American comics. And there's kind of a weird inverse reverse of like the hero dichotomy there because of, uh, um, especially because I I associate noir and superheroes as being specifically American genres of like the World War II era, one right before the end of the war, one right after. And always important to point out that any genre actually it's much more of a spectrum than a hard thing because Maltese Falcon was 1941. So we weren't even, I think we had just gotten in the war. It was just before the war. And yet Maltese Falcon's clearly a noir. So America was moving towards noir already in the late 30s. One of my pick is uh, John Woo's uh, 1986 Hong Kong Thrill Ride, A Better Tomorrow. There's another movie that's also noir, and that's Jackie Chan's uh, Crime Story, which I'm now realizing it's his version of High and Low. Since it's about a kidnapping, and it's about a cop who's uh, part of the kidnapping. It's the only movie where Jackie Chan takes his role, like, super, super, super seriously. He's seen a therapist, gets blown up, and it's, like, it's a pretty dark movie. It's pretty intense for what it is. Not that much kung fu fighting in that movie. A lot, a lot of, like, talking and, like, running around. But, uh, yeah, that, that movie, I consider, like, his, like, take on, on the noir world in the, like, for Hong Kong, you know? I picked two as well. The first one is one of my favorite movies, period. It's um, Port of Shadows, which is a French noir. One of the best-looking movies ever. It's essentially just about a port city in France, and there's an army deserter that's sort of floating around. It feels like kind of purgatory. He's just sort of moving from... From, from like one lost soul to another and then it kind of sparks into like this uh revenge plot that puts him into the spotlight it's really good i don't know if it's streaming i used to have like a bootleg dvd of it but it's it's really good it's it's a gorgeous movie it's um marcel carnet he directed um children of paradise i'm blanking on the other one because i think it's in french the jour si la vie and the screenplays were often written by jacques prevert this one is also by Prevert. And then the other one I picked was um, Kim Ki-young's The Housemaid, which was in a box set from Criterion, like the part of their Eclipse line in the 2000s that I was really obsessed with. And then um, Martin Scorsese included it on one of his world cinema projects. So we got a new restoration. Seeing Q&As with Bong Joon-ho for Parasite is one of his biggest influences for Parasite. But it's essentially about a South Korean family who moves into a new home and they're pregnant with a child and the wife is too kind of sick to work so they bring in a housemate to help and it sort of spirals into like this affair crime plot that's also killer and gorgeous these like i mean they're known for it but some of these especially these international ones the cinematography the black and white photography is unbelievable i will just shout out a movie by pedro Madovar that i love that people don't talk about i think nearly enough uh, that really to me signified his return after a few movies in the early 90s where it seemed like maybe he had no more to say and then suddenly he had 30 more years of stuff to say and it's a movie called live flesh that stars Javier Bardem. It's incredible. He had made a movie just before this called The Flower of My Secret, which everyone was like, oh, that was good. It was kind of a G-rated romantic 
comedy about a woman, but they didn't know what to make of it because it was so not Almodovar. And then he made Live Flesh, which really inaugurated his mature period of all his themes got darker. Everything got way more unsettling. And yet the craziness and the cinema and the transgressiveness of 1980s, Almodovar was still retained. And it's basically about these two men whose lives affect each other. A police officer shoots another man and the man becomes paralyzed. And then we see their lives across 10 years and how they intertwine. And it's very sexual. I think the movie is rated NC-17. A lot, Maybe not, but just a lot of great sex scenes. It's about Spain. It's funny, going talking about a brighter summer day. It becomes a metaphor because Spain was under the Franco dictatorship. And it's about a country moving out of the Franco dictatorship into freedom. There's a lot of noir elements. A lot of the movie takes place at night. And I just loved it. And I remember um, seeing it. And just being like, holy moly, I'm going to now see everything this guy does. Because I saw it when I was like 19 or 20 or 21. I saw it the night I remember I broke up with my my college girlfriend. She and I broke up. I shouldn't say it like I. I'm sure she was just. But, and, but then we got back together. Here's the weird thing, guys. We got back together three times. And I, you cannot write this. The first two times that we broke up, that night I went and saw the new Almodovar movie. And the first one was Live Flesh. And then I think the second time we broke up, I went and saw Talk to Her. And I was like, what is going on? Then I got very nervous every time a new Almodovar movie came out. <laughs> I was about to say, yeah. <laughs> Jessica, if you have, I don't know why you would ever listen to these. Uh, she's an incredible woman. You know, she and I were together for four years, and she's wonderful. Really, it's just a shout-out to Jessica. Jessica, you're incredible. Shout-out to Jessica. Shout-out to Jessica. <laughs> <laughs> and Almodovar, who softened the devastation of those breakups. I hope someone someday is like, Jessica, I was listening to this podcast about uh, international noir, and you were brought up. And then she'll be like, that guy. The last thing I was going to say is I almost brought up Park Chan-wook, but then I just Googled Park Chan-wook and noir, and he basically said he doesn't really like film noir. And yet he makes movies like Decision to Leave, which could arguably be... Oh, noir. Oh, well, 100%. I feel like half of his movies, or maybe all of his movies, feel kind of influenced by that. Yeah, yeah. Old Boy's got some noir. Pop culture, final thoughts. I would go first, but I want to see if maybe this guy outside my house will stop. I don't know how much you guys are picking that up. They're mowing outside my house, too. What the heck's happening today? Thank God I'm nowhere near trees. Uh, anyway, Edwin's in a five by five cell in the middle of a maximum security prison. So Sunday, he's in the cell Magneto's in the, the plastic cell from <laughs> X2. Anyways, <laughs> Sunday came back from Palm Springs. I was tired, but I had the courage to go to Whammy. And then from there, I went to Brain Dead to watch Altered States on 35. What courage. Yeah, it was great. I loved it. I loved every minute of that movie. That's that's a theater experience picture. Would you believe there's a, there's a 70 millimeter print of this movie? And I want to see that 70 millimeter because some of the scenes in this film is where you find God. I almost found God that night because I was stoned out of my mind. I was holding on to his friend's hand like, oh my God, this is it, man. This is it. We're about to meet the maker, man. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then um, after that, I, when I got home, I watched Bullet Train. And that movie was not that great. It had some funny moments, but not great. And then, of course, I saw Patton for the second time since 2015. Why are your pop culture and final thoughts always just an itemization of everything you saw the last three Because years? I, got nothing, I got nothing else going on. That's all I've been doing. And we have two more episodes. You got you to gotta save it. You got to space it out. It's okay. I got other stuff I did. I'll go. I don't want to scoop Daniel, but I kind of do. Uh, <laughs> we saw kind of connected to noir, sort of adjacent, uh, as we saw Glass Onion on Thanksgiving. 
and it was uh, incredible. I loved it. I think, Daniel, you were, I think you said my sentiment exactly, which is that I don't necessarily know which one I like more. Glass Onion being the sequel to Knives Out. Um, it's like at that same level where if anybody said, I like this one more, I like that one more, I'd be like, yeah, sure. Like they're both equally really great. Yeah. So is, is Ed Norton Elon Musk? Essentially. The timing of its release. It's pretty crazy. The week it came out with everything with Twitter is actively insane. It feels like he wrote it two weeks before. You're like, what the heck? And and Dave Bautista is Joe Rogan. I heard this crazy fact, just side note, that if Netflix had chosen to give Glass Onion a proper theatrical release, it would have almost certainly grossed $200 million. It made like $15 million and I think 600 theaters. And it's insane that they didn't push it. I mean, it's a bummer they didn't release it normally, but I think maybe this shows them that for Knives Out 3, they will do a, a more proper theatrical release because we know that Daniel Craig and Ryan Johnson are, are signed on for a third one. It's bizarre because they like it's built to watch twice. It might be better a second time. And so if you saw it in a theater and they're like, oh, it's going to be on Netflix in a month, I'll get Netflix. Like you already if you already have Netflix, you're going to watch it. Sure. You're not going to pay any more money, but they could have had a, a double. I think it's I think it's nuts. It's so good. And. I just want to see a thousand of these now. It's like that the Confess Fletch movie from earlier this year, where it's like I would watch a new one of these every couple of years if they kept making them. Like Knives Out does such an it's such interesting stuff with the way it forms its mystery. Knives Out's been out long enough that I will semi-spoil it, which is Knives Out's mystery does this thing where about a third of the way through, you think you actually know who the killer is, and it becomes about the killer trying to cover up, and then it kind of flips back on you a couple of times, and Glass Onion does similar stuff, but also totally different. Really fun and great cast, and I will I will watch Daniel Craig be his... <laughs> via Southern Southern Have you seen detective. that Daniel Craig music video where he's just dancing? Yeah, directed by Taika. Yeah, <laughs> it's hilarious. Dave Bautista, who had worked on Spectre with Daniel Craig and then worked on this, Dave Bautista had said that Daniel Craig seemed a lot happier on the set of Glass Onion <laughs> than he did on the Bond movies. And uh, you can find me at twitch.tv slash Carter Cruz and watch me play D&D Tuesday evenings at twitch.tv slash NerdHollow. Yeah, I went out. I had, I had a lovely little holiday. And on Thanksgiving, I went out to see the new Ryan Johnson movie, Glass Onion, in theaters. Connor was actually there. Great, great movie. I got to say, I really do hope it comes back out because it is an audience really makes that. Cackling with an audience, a pretty packed audience, was, was a really beautiful thing. My shout out will just be the Oxford word of the year is goblin mode. Oh, yeah. You know, I'm 45. I've said this before. I, I don't want to pretend I'm 20, but I do love, like, waiting in the pool of pop culture because I think it's, I just don't want to be the grumpy old guy who's like, in my day, and so I was like, goblin mode? What the F is goblin mode? And then uh, I was told that goblin mode, I think Edwin may actually embody <laughs> <laughs> goblin mode, which is just doing whatever you want to do unapologetically, Despite what other people might think. Edwin, do you live your life in like goblin mode? Oh, should I know, man? I'm just watching pictures every damn day. I think you're right. Ed Edwin and most pets live in a perpetual state of goblin mode. As always, thank you guys for listening. You can find out about everything we're doing at secretmovieclub.com. Write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. Come tonight for our John Ford, Three Godfathers, and Rio Grande. Take a look. By the time you hear this, we've announced our January through March. we got a lot of things coming up. Alfred Hitchcock is our director of the year. And that is it. Thank you guys, as always, for meeting up to do these podcasts. I love you. Have a great week. And I love you, family. Bye-bye. Goodbye, citizens. 
your summer day. It's summer so time I saw you gave it the same rating as Bullet Train. Yes, I did because it wasn't that great. I, uh, I hate you. I hate you, Daniel, with the passion. I don't you ruin, you ruin lives. I know. I'm gonna watch an actual movie, a real movie. You're just expanding the. You know, you get a little bit of both. And if you hate it, it just makes the next thing you, you watch even all the better. You're like, wow, this is what I needed. I don't even tell me that. <laughs>